There are two basic motivating forces, fear and love. When we're afraid, we pull back from life. When we're in love, we open up to all that life has to offer with passion, excitement, and acceptance. Coming to you from our studio in Santa Barbara, California, this is the Fear Me Out podcast. We're not your typical self-help program. Our show takes a deep dive into those psychological issues that affect us on a daily basis. We hope to shift your perspective and have you experiencing emotions differently. Now here are your hosts, Kim Foskey and Dr. Dana Saperstein. We might be the master of our own thoughts. Still many of us are slaves to others' emotions. On this episode, Dana and I begin a discussion regarding the fear of taking on other people's emotions. Whether you're conscious of this or not, many of us succumb to the fact and allow it to dictate the quality of our lives. So join us as we decipher the reasons behind taking on other people's emotions and how you can practice empathy without taking a psychological toll. Well, folks, you get the uh, the pleasure of Dane and I again um, after the uh, the first two episodes and of listening to to both of us and then having guests uh, uh, since then. But uh, we felt it was important um, for he and I to speak on the uh, the fear of taking on other people's emotions. Um, and uh, we'll have a future guest that will also uh, come on with us and, and talk about that as well. But um, before we uh, before we start this episode, I, I want to thank each and every one of you that have listened, um, either through the uh, the first eight or nine uh, podcasts, because I think this may be ten or eleven uh, that we're doing today. Um, podcasting isn't easy, as uh, we found out, um, but uh, we're really enjoying what we're doing. Uh, we do spend a lot of time um, in preparation for these episodes and in finding the right guests that that not only have subject matter expertise but can eloquently um, state that expertise and and hopefully you can relate to these these people. So again, thank you for listening and we're going to continue on. We have uh, uh, many more not only fear episodes but other daily psychological issues that, that affect us that uh, we'll talk about in, in months and, and maybe years to come. But anyway, Dana's sitting here anxiously uh, waiting for me to, to start this episode. So I guess the best way to, to start is to, to allow you, the expert, to, to tell us what an empath is. Well, thanks, Kim. Um, I agree with your appreciation for everyone that's been willing to, um, to listen, and I'm hoping everybody's enjoying what they're hearing um, I would say that uh, about 5% of the population uh, has the characteristics of being an empath. So it's a large number of people, but not inordinately large. And, um, uh, you know, part of what being an empath implies is a heightened degree of sensitivity in terms of feeling uh, your feelings. It also implies a certain intensity with which you feel your feelings. So it's not just being ex- it's exquisitely sensitive. It's also uh, uh, the intensity with which you process the information. Um, I would say that a lion's share of people that come to see me are empaths and they don't realize it because uh, being an empath and not understanding what it is that you bring to the table causes a lot of pain and suffering when you're a child. Um, 
it's really unfortunate because uh, it's a gift if you understand it, but it feels like a liability if you have to live with it and you don't understand why you're so different than most other people. So part of what I do is to educate people who walk into my world with this quality to help them understand, number one, it's a genetic uh, quality. It's not something that... um, uh, that you acquire over the course of time, your your relationship to it obviously is is acquired. Either you fight against it, which most people do, or you learn to accept it and use it as an asset, which I try to help people do. But really the degree of sensitivity that you possess is like a lot of other traits. It's very much genetically programmed into your nervous system. So uh, being an empath is, is, is something that's been scientifically proven or, or is it a theory through psychology or how did the term empath come about? Do you know? Well, there, there is a woman who did a lot of research uh, on being a highly sensitive person, which is another way of uh, describing being an empath. Are you talking about Elaine Aaron? Yeah, she's written a lot of books about what it means to be highly sensitive as a kid, as a partner in a relationship, um, just, you know, from a general perspective. So she's the first sort of professional person that opened up this notion that uh, there is a percentage of people that are a little bit different than average. And, and you know, you recommended that book to me many years maybe ago. some 20 years ago. Yeah. And, and I read it like she wrote it about me. Yes. Yeah, most people that read it, if it really applies to their situation, are actually quite stunned at... Uh, the accuracy and the uh, and uh, the things that she described because um, it really it really is a very fundamentally different way of experiencing reality than than ninety five percent of the population. It doesn't m- mean that it's so different that you know you can't relate to other people, but it does preclude having an easy time with superficial conversation, as an example. And like I had, I think. And, and I don't want to go back and rehash episode one and two, um, but it is the reason my mother called me different. Right. Yes. She could tell there was something different about you. Usually parents are quite nervous about this quality in their children. Uh, most people have secrets that they're ashamed of, and they can sort of inherently sense whether those secrets are going to remain that way or whether there's somebody in their presence who might be able to uh, sort of divine the information in a way that would make the average person feel a bit uncomfortable. Now, this is not always a conscious thing, but I will say that um, that uh, parents just sometimes have a feeling that their kid is a bit of a, an emotional threat because the kid looks at them in a different way, maybe some of the other children in the family or other people, and um, most people would prefer their secrets to be kept a secret. Yeah, I think it was, for me, it was being constantly fearful, number one, of my dad's rage or the rage that was in the house or anybody being rageful, mm-hmm. and the constant amount of tears that I had as, as a kid. Well, and we are often shamed for being really sensitive, for reacting as strongly as we do. Um, for, um, you know, how many times have you, were you told, why are you making such a big deal about this? It's nothing. You know, why are you making a mountain out of a molehill? All the different ways you can shame people for uh, having the, the perceptions that they have. Right. And, and when I was growing up, boys weren't supposed to cry, right? Exactly. Boys weren't supposed to show emotion right. outwardly. They weren't supposed to publicly show it. 
you were supposed to just pick up your bootstraps and, and, and move on. And I don't understand why you're sad about this. Right. Yeah. And you're, you're often made to feel ashamed of yourself because, um, you know, it's, you, your mom told you you were different. I don't think that was a compliment. No, I didn't take it as a compliment. I didn't take it then as a compliment. I don't take it now as a compliment either. <laughs> well, so, I don't think she no, meant no, it I as understood. a compliment. No, she didn't make it. No, she, <laughs> she didn't. I was, I was different. I wasn't fitting into her norm right. at that point. So Right. And I think in a certain way, your father was jealous of you uh, because of the attention maybe that you got from your mom and the fact that that he could sense that there was something about you that was a little bit different that was a threat to him and his pathology of being a raging alcoholic. Well, I think I was a threat to his his manhood in 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 many ways, right? right? And I wasn't, you know, um, being seen by him at least in the way that he thought having a son should be, right? You know, again, that I was had feelings was just not the way that that he wanted me to be, in right? Life. You know, um, when I think about this aspect of being a person. Uh, I had a really unusual experience when I was uh, actually in utero. I was about six months in development inside my mom. And I have a very, very, very clear memory of uh, being in the basement of the house that we lived in. And my sister, who was two years old, um, two years old at that time, clinging onto my mother's dress. And my father coming home from work and my parents having... Uh, a knockdown, drag-out fight about the fact that my father was uh, having an affair with his secretary. And I remember really, really clearly as a developing fetus that um, my mother believed that the reason that my father was being unfaithful was because she was ugly, because she was pregnant. Now, I don't know how I knew this, but I just had that feeling at the time. And I remember... Uh, this feeling of taking my mother's ugliness into my body through uh, the umbilical cord and feeling like I was being poisoned by her self-loathing and her self-hate and um, her feelings of ugliness. And it was a really sad, awful experience, obviously. Um, and when I was born, actually, I suffered from what's called failure to thrive. Um, I wasn't able to uh, rely on my mom for uh, comfort or nutrition. I was actually allergic to her milk and it took months for them to figure out why I was uh, so miserable. Eventually, you know, they discovered that uh, from a physiological standpoint, they needed to feed me something other than, uh, uh, than milk with lactose in it. But it was a really difficult uh, beginning to my life. Now, I didn't have this memory till I was in my 30s. And I remember co uh, coming home from uh, uh, a therapy session when I had this memory and saying to my wife, you know, telling her the story. And she said to me, well, I'm not so sure that, you know, what you're telling me is real. I'll trust that you believe it's real, but you know, there's no way to prove that you can know something that clearly when you're that age. Um, and so we just sort of left it at that. Well, about a year later, my wife was having lunch with my mom and just out of the blue, my mom described to my wife that exact uh, situation. So for whatever reason, it, the memory came back to my mom about, you know, being in the basement, having this terrible fight and so on and so forth. What my mother didn't recognize was the exchange of energy between us and my absorbing her self-hate because um, 
my mother was a person that was very disconnected from herself, so she wouldn't have known that that would have been part of the experience. But she did describe the event uh, in many, many details. And my wife came home and said, you never believe what happened today. Mom, you know, your mom told me that whole story that you told me a year ago that I didn't necessarily believe were true. So, uh, you know, from the very early part of my existence, I uh, recognized myself as being an empath and feeling extremely responsible for the pain of uh, people around me. I, I don't know if you felt the same way that I did. I, I always felt because I didn't understand the empath relationship that, that I had within myself until later on in adulthood. So I always felt there was something wrong with me. Yes. So, I mean, yeah. is that common from, from empath people that you've dealt with professionally or, or personally? If they don't have that understanding, do they think there's, because there's a negative and a positive to this, right? Right. So the negative is, why am I like this? I, I'm, I feel other people's emotions. It, it, it makes it makes my emotions ten times even worse, so on and so forth. Right. Um, is that so? That's pretty common. Then it's extremely common, and sadly, uh, usually, if you are a really sensitive person, you're made to feel ashamed of what it is that you're perceiving. So, not only again do you feel the anxiety of the people around you that are not taking care of their psychological business. But um, you're also made to feel ashamed that you are, uh, to you, the house feels like it's on fire. Everybody else around you is sitting around saying, oh, yeah, it's a little warm in here, but it's not that big of a deal. So don't worry about it. And, and what it feels like to you is, you know, a five alarm fire. And to them, it's just life with a little heat attached to it. So that feeling of misunderstanding often creates a need for you or I to uh, actually become a different person than we were designed to be. Uh, because if you want to feel connected to your family, you do whatever is necessary in order to sort of be what they want you to be. You because become the chameleon is, right. what, I, is what I say, right? Yeah. You yes, change you colors. Absolutely, because it's so painful to feel alienated from the people that you need that um, it's a lot easier to just to assume their reality than uh, to try to stick with what it is that um, that you feel inside. People are surprised when I tell them I'm actually an introvert. I'm not an extra extrovert. Right. Um, it, it was the extrovert piece was just like we talked about was being a chameleon, right? It was my way to survive, right? So I had to put on this act that I could fit in, that I could survive in a crowd, I could survive around other people, I could be friendly, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. When actually I prefer to be by myself, right? And I still do to this day. I still feel more comfortable being by myself alone than I do around people or in crowds. And and that fools a lot of people that don't know me well because they think I'm extroverted. But again, trying to fit in and not stand out because I was always told that right. you know um, that I was different and and I didn't want to be seen as different right around friends or, or family or, or anybody that I came into contact with. I just wanted to be seen as normal. Well, so Kim, how'd you get to the point where you began to accept that difference and to actually recognize that it was a gift for you and that it's helped you in ways that you didn't really re realize, especially as an adult? Well, I think it's, I mean, it's taken decades 
you know, for me to, to get there and, and, and realize that it that truly is a gift and, and it's not a negative, that I can really tune into other people's energy. I can turn it, tune into other people's emotions um, and not only sympathize, but can empathize with them and, and, and not be able to, and be able to help them not internalize it into my own self being, which I took on for, you know, not only as a child, you know, my father's rage, my mother's sadness, took on other people's grief, took on other people's emotions and, and, and took it personally and, and let it, you know, uh, contribute to a lower quality of life for myself. But now I, now I can see that differentiation, right? That, that I'm able to help people without having to take on what they're, de- what they're dealing with and take on that emotion. And I can separate that and, and be able to help them. Right. So um, um, one of the most common things that happen when you're cut from this cloth is that uh, when you begin to have romantic relationships, you uh, often engage in what uh, you and I have described as a rescue fantasy, that we find puppies uh, by the side of the road to uh, the night on, try I to am save. the knight in shining armor Yes, for the, for the rescuer fantasy because and whether I talked about this in, in preceding episodes or not, or, or we definitely write about this in the book, for me it was, it was validation for me, right? Because I was seen in, in the family, if I could keep the peace in the family, that was the validation right there, just trying to keep everything kind of even and, and put out fires here and there. And my self-worth was around um, helping people. And so if in romantic relationships was, you know, somebody needed me to do something, you know, to, to, instead of being on, on equal footing, but they needed me to save them, rescue them, um, lift them up, and so on and so forth, I thought that that was my mission to a happy relationship. Can you distinguish between... Um Caring for other people, which is what we like to do, and taking care of other people, and taking responsibility for their pain, which is a completely different uh, sort of dynamic than the natural wanting to love and care for the people that uh, are a part of your life. Well, I think it, it goes back again to the what I had said earlier about you know being having some validity in the relationship and in thinking that I had to experience what that person was experiencing. And I'm not talking about, you know, true experience, but experiencing that pain that I had to take on that grief or I had to take on that anger um, because there was going to be a disassociation if, if I didn't do that or they were going to see me as, well, you're not helping me. You, do, you, don't, you don't get it, right? I'm crying and, and you're sitting there trying to be realistic about this and, and you're not doing anything about my grief or I'm mad at you. And, and why are you not cowering in the corner because I'm mad at you? Why, you know, um, so if I wasn't taking on that person's energy, then they didn't, they didn't see me as being worthy, if that makes sense. So you weren't lovable unless you were taking on the pain and managing it. I wasn't lovable unless I was taking on the pain and managing it. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Which is the essence of that rescue fantasy. 
I mean, if you think about Walt Disney and how much money he made with every every movie he's ever made based on that rescue fantasy, it's something that our culture supports and really encourages. That uh, it used to be that men were the the knight in shining armor that would come and rescue women. Now it's switched from women rescuing men that are incapable and and uh, Rapunzel's and not letting down her hair anymore. That's right. That's right. She's letting down her hair in a different way. Yeah. It, you know, I, I kind of preface it by saying it was like, okay, well, if you can jump this high, well, then you should be able to jump this high. Well, if you can jump that high, you should be able to jump that high. And at some point, you reach a point where you can't jump any higher, and that person says, well, you're no good to me anymore then. Is that what you experienced in the that's, nature of- Right, and that's how, I, that's how I've, I, I've put it in my context is that, you know, there's a, there's a certain there's a certain ceiling, right, that you finally hit in, in relationships, especially romantic relationships, where taking on somebody else's pain doesn't, not only doesn't work for you anymore, doesn't work for them anymore, because they're, they're not getting from you, because, for lack of a better term, I started having compassion fatigue right. at that point. And it was like, and what it was was my intuition saying, hey, dude, there's something wrong here right? You've done this for so long here and, and you just need to stop this. And, and then that person turns their attention somewhere else where they can get what they were getting from you for, for that period of time. Right. Which happened. So again, you, you risk being abandoned if you don't perform your given role. Well, exactly. And that was, you know, that's how I was brought up right? It was not only because I was adopted, so I was already different, right? I wasn't biologic related there, so I was trying to always fit in. And if I didn't fit in, I thought I was going to be abandoned, right? Whether that's physical abandonment or emotional abandonment or whatever, I felt like I was going to be abandoned. So I had to take on, I had to take on that pain. I had to relate to what was going on there to be able to survive. Exactly. So what has become the alternative in your way of looking at romantic relationships as an example well the the alternative for me is 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 for me is finding that level playing field right it's it's not i understand that the only way that somebody's going to be able to save themselves is to save themselves it's not up to me to save them right, right. they they have to do it the, themselves and I can see, and I can see that um, in in certain people and, and in certain relationships and stuff like that. And and I can provide that sympathy, and I can provide that empathy, or I can help listen or or provide some guidance in that way. But I'm not taking that responsibility on anymore. Right. Right. So I'm. I you know, for me, it's looking for somebody that's probably not looking for that knight in shining armor to to lift me up and and to fill me up and be somebody that I need or am missing in my life type thing because there's some lack of fulfillment or there's, you know, some other issues that I haven't dealt with in my life and so on and so forth. So I need somebody to, that I can project either that on or, or can take on that responsibility. And, and that's just not me anymore. So what you're looking for is parity, somebody who can take care of you and you can take care of them, but, but not manage their pain. Exactly. Um, I, I, I'm assuming you can imagine that as a therapist, I had to learn quite early on uh, about how to have a relationship to 
people's emotional pain. Right. And, and you and I've had these conversations, right? Because it's hard for me to fathom how you have done this job for so long and, and have seen thousands and thousands of patients and not been able to, t and, and have these relationships with patients for years and not be able to, to take on their pain or not take on their pain to the detriment of, of you. Right. Um, I, people are quite surprised, actually, that I don't get burnt out and that I don't feel uh, that fatigue that you're talking about, that um, I learned very early on that my job as a therapist, if you're my client, is to introduce you to your pain in ways that you don't understand it and how it's affecting you. But I also have a lot of faith that um, given time and understanding that people are quite capable of managing their own pain. And that if I start to monkey with your pain, you're going to feel inherently uncomfortable. Because that's not about helping you. That's about calming myself because I'm afraid about what it is you're bringing to the table. So generally speaking, if, if you're seeing a therapist and you feel like they're trying to manage your pain for you, uh, it's not going to feel right because it's not about helping you. It's about calming the therapist and helping that person feel more in control of the situation. Because in my relationship with the people that I see, I look at it as a huge compliment that people are willing to share their pain with me, that they feel safe enough to open their hearts and their souls to me. And so I have the utmost respect for them. And in relationship to their pain, I don't want to mess with their pain. I want them to feel my compassion and my caring and my, and my concern but I also want them to understand that most people don't realize how much strength they have to manage themselves in a way that, um, uh, that has not really worked very well for them before. Because most people are made to feel so ashamed of the things that they feel pain about or that they caused whatever abuse they might have suffered and so on and so forth. And um, I don't feel like, like my pathologizing that person and agreeing with them that there's something wrong with them is going to help in any way. Well, Don, I mean, we fear, most of us fear pain, right? I mean, whether it's physical or emotional pain. Right. We want to get away from it as quickly as possible and, and, and step right. out of that box, right? And, yes. and make it just go away, even though if we're not dealing with it, just, just go away. Uh -huh. And so most of us don't have that, those tools or, or that perspective to be able to deal with it when it comes about. Well, you describe being told that you need to sit in your shit, Right. And if you really want to heal, there's no skipping that process of feeling the loneliness that you grew up with, feeling the incredible fear that you were subject to, feeling the alienation that you did from your family, uh, feeling the loneliness that you uh, had in your marriages and um, being told always that you were a failure and never good enough and, and so on and so forth. It's one thing to understand those uh, concepts intellectually, which can be useful, but what you allowed yourself to do, at least from what you've described to me, is that you allowed yourself to feel the depth of the despair that you carried around most of your life. And then that process of crying and, um, and dealing with the anger and dealing with the fear and, and really facing those emotions, you got to a place where they were no longer a reference point in your reality. Well, they, and they weren't useful to me anymore. Right. Right. <clears throat> in that way, it's, it's whether it was in a an epiphany or whatever. I think you get to a point, like I said, with this this where you get to a ceiling where it's just not working for you anymore. Right. 
And, and it's not sitting there fantasizing about how life could be better or how I could be better or how I could be doing things differently. It's, it's, it's what happened to me, the cause and effect to what, why am I thinking this way and why am I living my life this way? And, and, and the only, like you and I talk about cognitive behavioral therapy and, and whether that works or not, but we won't get onto that subject at the moment. But really it was, is really digging deep down. And right. like you said, and, and like I've referred to it as sitting in your shit for a very long period of time and allowing yourself and embracing those emotions that you're feeling. Um, it's really kind of an exorcism of getting that outside of your body um, and kind of having the, 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 the tank being empty and, and filling up with more positive emotions and, and more clarity of really how you want to feel and live going forward. Right on that. It takes a lot of courage. It, 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 it takes a, a lot of courage. And, and like I said, in, in, in preceding episodes, it, it was something I was skeptical about. It was something in the first few weeks that I didn't think I was going to be able to do because it was extremely painful right. to do. And, and I wasn't sure it was going to work or not. It was the biggest turning point in my life. Right. Because I, I couldn't sit here right now and be truthful transparent and I'd be a hypocrite if I if I if I'm sitting here telling and giving telling a story and giving advice and so on and so forth if I hadn't gone through that process right you know one of the things I say to people Kim uh, when they're deciding whether they want to do this kind of work with me is that they're likely to go through a period of time months usually where they feel very tender-hearted not depressed necessarily or or hopeless, but but my job is to introduce you again to your tenderness, to your vulnerability, to your to your your deep down feelings of of being a little kid and feeling helpless and scared and overwhelmed, and you have to be willing to acknowledge those feelings in order to heal them. Right, and and those feelings, and I think the vulnerability was definitely something that I felt for not only going through that process, but for some months thereafter. Right, that I was somewhat thin skinned. Yes. At that, at that point. Um, but it helps me today to be very cognizant of falling back into a familiar pattern, right? Because I, I know right away now that, wait a minute, I'm taking on somebody else. This is somebody else's shit, not my shit. Right. And, and right away now it doesn't, it's familiar, but also it, it, it's like, stop. You're not tempted. I'm not tempted. I'm not tempted to do that anymore. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not, it's not mine. It's not for me. So, you know, I, I take a left instead of a right now. You okay. know, I, I just want to make sure that everyone understands that it's not a lack of compassion that we're talking about. That you can be incredibly compassionate and very much present to somebody who's suffering and uh, respect the fact that they are capable of managing their pain and you, what's required of you is just to be present to that person and help them feel like they're not alone in the process of coming to terms with whatever it is that, uh, that you need to face in order to heal. Yeah. I think one of the, one of the things that I realized and, and, and also talking to other people that have that empathic um, ability within themselves as well is that 
they that being seen as long as they've been seen been heard or been seen that's enough right for them right well no. but there is another part of this that um can sometimes make people very uncomfortable which is that uh as a sensitive person as an empath there's going to be a certain percentage of people that without realizing it are going to be afraid of you and that's it can be a little bit uncomfortable recognizing that why is this person avoiding me or why do they not want to sort of engage with me in any way why why does it seem like you know every time we get together they're sitting at the opposite end of the table as far away from me as possible or so on and so forth right um, and I, and I have a little bit of a different experience with with that is that I've had people that are uncomfortable with me because I can read them that's what I'm that's is that what, what you're saying at. okay yes okay yeah they're uncomfortable because we, what you bring to the table is vulnerability that they would prefer not to uh, engage in. Right. And, and it's not that I'm reading in between the lines of what they're saying. is that I pick up on their energy. Right. Right. And whether those people want to be close to the vest, they don't practice vulnerability or, or whatever, it, it, it does make them very uncomfortable that I'm reading them like a book. Right. I, I, I'm laughing because I had an experience once of going on a, uh, a short overnight trip with my wife to a bed and breakfast place. And uh, in the afternoon, you know, they serve the wine and cheese and all the people that are staying at the, uh, at the bed and breakfast place are, you know, sitting together. And I always, when I enter a situation like that, I say to my wife, how quickly do you think I can empty this room? And, and she starts to laugh and she says, why do you always say that? And I said, well, you'll see that I'll be able to empty this room within five minutes because I know what it's going to be like. The way that men interact with each other is that the first thing we want to ask the other person is what do you do for a living? That is a, which is a, the most impersonal question you can ask somebody. But, well, yeah. it, it is, but it is a guy thing, right? Unless you're a psychologist. And then it's, oh. a, it's a cause for great it's an open, discomfort. Okay. Right? So uh, I'm always the last person to answer that question, and I never know how I want to answer it because I know if I tell the truth, the room's going to empty out really quickly because uh, once there's a psychologist present, it's not comfortable anymore. People just get inherently uncomfortable, unless you're somebody who really is fascinated by your own uh, growth and and you know, have an orientation toward evolving as a emotionally and, uh, you know, spiritual person, you're going to be really uncomfortable when somebody tells you that what they do for a living is, you know, read people, be connected. Cause you're to really going to find out about them. That's right. So in this situation, <laughs> it took about five minutes, you know, as soon as I said the word, I'm a psychologist, the room went dead quiet. And then all of a sudden, everybody had something to do. Gravitated elsewhere. That's right. They couldn't get out of the room fast enough. And she said, I think this is a new record. You emptied this room out in less than 15 minutes. Good job. <laughs> well, you know, that's the way it goes sometimes. Well, it's like we talked about. I mean, it, it, being an empathic person, it is a blessing and a curse. Right. Right. In, in, in that way. Because sometimes, you know, again, I... I it's part of me that still wants to fit in, right? I don't want to clear a room. Right. 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 But, but again, I also don't want to have surface conversation with people. Right. And, and I never ask anybody what they do for a living. And, and I ask questions that to people, whether I know them or don't know them, that, that tend to make some people uncomfortable. Yeah. Right. It's like, I've never heard anybody ask me that question before. And it's right. like, well, it's because people have surface conversations all the time. 
and I don't have time to have surface conversations all the time. I, I actually, if I want to know about you, I actually want to know about you. Right. Type thing. And, and it is interesting. Like you said, I think you quoted the statistic that 5% of people are empaths and, and I'm sure some people have some empathic ability, but may not be complete empaths, but, but it's, it's interesting. Um, just the love, just the, the slight level of granularity that people ever want to get into. Right. Well, you, you know, Kim, my experience with people is that usually their sensitivity starts showing up when they're a very young child. But when you go through puberty, it seems to take on uh, a whole nother level of intensity because uh, it's not just your body that changes when you go through puberty, but your brain goes through a huge conceptual uh, change based on the hormones and everything that are flowing through your your system. Um, so it's not unusual for young teenagers on occasion to find their way into my world because of this concept. Um, I had an experience once with a, a young woman who was just starting junior high school and um, her mom would take her to school and she would park in the parking lot and this young girl got out of the car and as soon as she got out of the car and started walking toward her classrooms at the junior high, she, would, she was starting to have panic attacks. And she, she'd never had a panic attack before in her entire life, but walking through the parking lot somehow was triggering an enormous amount of anxiety for this uh, young woman. And uh, she was referred to me and came with her mom uh, to see me. And, uh, you know, this lovely young woman comes, you know, bouncing in the door and sits down on my couch, and I am, you know, I say, well, you know, what's, what's happening? She said, well, I don't know what's wrong with me, but but I'm okay all the way to school, but as soon as I get out of the car and I start walking toward my classroom, I can't breathe, and I start to feel really scared and overwhelmed. And I said to her, um, can you tell whether what you're feeling is coming from inside of you or coming from outside of you? And she said, well, I don't really understand what you mean. And I said, well, anxiety can come from inside of you based on something that's happening inside your body. But anxiety can also be like wind. And you can, and you can feel things that are happening on the outside that create a feeling of anxiety on the inside. And she said, well, if I have to answer your question, I think it's coming from the outside, but I'm not really sure because I never thought about it before. So I said to her, we need, you and I need to try a scientific experiment. When you go to school tomorrow morning, I want you to sort of check in with how you're feeling before you open the door to step outside the car. And my guess would be that you're feeling fine, maybe a little bit of anticipation because you've already had a couple panic attacks and you're not sure if you're going to have another one. But my guess would be that the more each step that you take through the parking lot, the more uncomfortable you're going to get. And she said, well, that doesn't make sense. Why would that happen? And I said, well, there are certain people, and I'm guessing that you're one of these kind of people, that can feel other people's emotions really, really strongly. So what might feel like a breeze coming towards some people is going to feel like hurricane winds coming toward you. And this is just the way that you're built. There's nothing wrong with you. It's just that you are designed to feel what's happening around you on an emotional level at a very acute level. And she said, well, I never thought about that before, but I'll, I'll, I'll give your experiment a try. And so the, the next morning, same thing happened, but she realized when she came back to see me the next time that uh, 
that what she was feeling was everybody's feelings around her. Junior high is probably the most painful, uncomfortable time in all of our lives when we're 12, 13, 14 years old. Everybody has a big question mark over their head about whether anybody's going to like them, whether anybody's going to want to be with them, whether they're attractive, you know, all the different anxieties that pop up during that age. And she was feeling all the anxiety that everybody was walking into school with. So I taught her an exercise on how to um, uh, sort of build a structure around her using light and, and that that light was going to stop other people's feelings from entering her body that the only feelings that she was going to allow in were feelings of love and uh, friendship, not other people's pain. And that if she was willing to, uh, to do this every day and practice it, that um, within a very short period of time, going to school was not going to be a problem for her anymore. So I, I gave her a week to practice, and she came um, bouncing in a week later with a big smile on her face and said, it worked. I can't believe it worked. Uh, you know, and, and guess what? My daddy is exactly like me. Because when I came home and I talked to him about uh, what you told me about being a really highly sensitive person, he said, I always wondered why I was like this. And so now I understand that me and my dad are exactly the same, and it's so cool. And I taught him how to, how to surround himself with that protective stuff. And so, uh, you know. She, the teenager gave the dad the superhero lesson. Exactly, yeah. And I never saw her again after that because all she needed to understand at this point in her life or at that point was that um, – that, uh, she gained know, the perspective she needed. Yeah, you don't need to right. take people's pain into your body. It's that simple. And because she was so young, she wasn't about to complicate it with all kinds of other uh, other notions. She just accepted it for what it was. And, uh, it, and It's amazing that a teenager could actually have that revelation and, under, and understand that. And, uh -huh. and I don't remember if you had mentioned the context of why she came to see you. Because she was having panic attacks. Because she was having panic attacks. When it, yeah. Yeah. So it was directly related to the, the idea that she really didn't understand that other people's pain is not her concern. Uh, yeah, that's amazing. I, you know, I wish, hypothetically thinking back, if somebody would have had to explain that to me. Yeah. At 14 or 15, would I have understood it? Whether I, would I have believed it if they've given me that, that, uh, um, that experiment to do um, and, and how understanding it, sooner than later in life, um, how the, my life would have changed at that, at that point. Well, it does make a huge difference. Usually the younger the person is, when I help them understand why they're so different, uh, the easier it becomes to uh, kind of accept who you are and to start really honoring what it is that you know. Because being really sensitive increases your ability to come up with novel solutions to problems. And it gives your imagination a chance to unfold in ways that the average person doesn't necessarily uh, have the ability to tap into very easily. It, it, it definitely is a, is a business person. Um, you know, I don't think in that traditional sense as, as a normal business person does. Um, and I don't like the cliche thinking outside the box. I think it's completely overused. It's to me is why do you need me? Why was there even a box in the first place? Right. So I always, I always thought, and again, use the word different. I was thinking differently as, you know, especially in business when I would question why we would do certain things. And they said, well, because we've done it that way for 30 years. I said, yeah, and so yeah. You know, well, we've done it that way for 30 years. Right. 
Um, so uh, again, it affects you in your professions as well, because in, in being a business person and being an executive in a publicly traded company, so I never felt like I fit in really well in this, in this corporate culture about the one upping each other and, 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 and so on and so forth. And, and, you know, I, I was thinking differently than, than what the norm is in business there. And, and probably why, I, again, when I talked about a ceiling in relationships, there was a ceiling also in, in my business career um, that, that I hit, you know, um, because, again, back to the blessing and the curse of, of being, having that intuitive and empathic ability, it's, it's still not seen as and openly seen as something of being a positive in, in the business world right? as well. So I know that that's true. Um, but I also do recognize that uh, the more that you can embrace the positive qualities of being an empath, the, the more uh, richness that your life can have. And I'm not talking about necessarily financial abundance, although that could be part of it. Uh, because really, uh, as I see people develop and I see people come to accept uh, why life has always been a little bit different for them and start to really recognize the gift rather than seeing it as a liability, it's really remarkable the kind of success I see people achieve and the kind of uh, ideas that they come, come up with once they start to really listen to what their, what their body has to tell them. Uh, it's quite unusual. I see people really um, sort of flower in ways that I never imagined or they never imagined was possible. It, you know, and it obviously helped me gravitate toward people professions. Right. I've always been a, a people person. I, I like people. I like getting to know people and, and I like helping people with their problems. Um, and so understanding the ability, this intuitive ability that I have has actually helped me in, in that way and, and actually made me more comfortable in, in relationships and, and made me more comfortable of how I can interact within those relationships also. I, you made an important thing that I, that I forgot to mention when we were talking about relationships and you talked about not so much in money. I actually looked at it because back in a certain period of my life, I was chasing money, right? Because I also thought that that was part of the validity and taking on somebody's emotions and thinking that somebody's going to change if I get to this certain point. So for a decade, I was chasing the money, figuring that ever, that this person would be happier. The person I was married to would be happier. We'd have a better lifestyle. And if I could just get to this point and around the corner here, everything would be fine. Well, I did it. I got to that point financially and did anything change? No. no. So I thought, well, then I, if I could just get to this point, you know, uh, a little bit further ahead, did anything change? Well, the only thing changed, I got to be your house, but nothing, <laughs> nothing changed. And then, you know, I did it a third time. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, I did it a third time. So making money isn't that hard, but nothing changed. I mean, the, the problems were still the problems. Um, and, you know, there wasn't that, that feeling, that feeling that I had inside that something was, was still wrong, was still there yeah. on, on that. So, I, you know, 
talking about, again, internalizing, you know, somebody else's emotion again and thinking that if you do something or if they ask you to do something and that's going to change the situation, it's not. Not likely. Not, not likely. No, and if it does, it's going to be for a short period of time. It's not going to be sustainable right. on that. Because, I, I mean, talking about experiments, I did multiple experiments in, in doing that, and it never worked. Right. So I stopped that experiment now. <laughs> which, uh, you know, which was probably wise on your part. Yeah. So, I mean, there not only not only in your profession or, or multiple professions out there, but there, there, there are a lot of, there are a lot of people and a lot of professions and, and so that have to deal with other people's emotions on a constant, constant yes. basis. And, 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 and especially now when we're living in this COVID era yes. where, where the world has changed and the dynamic of the world has changed and the way people are fearful of, of things and, and people are outwardly thinking that it's okay to be a dick. In, right. in, in public now or be mean to people. Um, it's interesting. I think if people haven't cognitive, been cognizant of taking on other people's emotions, they may be so more so now. Is, is Maybe you've seen that or... Well, there's way more anxiety in the world now than there's ever been before. And I think that there is an underlying feeling of frustration and... Uh, lots and lots of fear because we have no idea what the real truth is about what's happening. Um, all the statistics that we get are, are all um, sort of partial statistics, so we can't really trust anything that we're being told. I know that when this last variant of the of the virus came out, you know, the first thing that happened is everybody was talking about it's going to be the end of the world, and I think that's an incredibly irresponsible approach for the media to take until there's enough information to really help people understand what they're dealing with. I remember when I was in uh, high school, they had the, I think it was high school, the D.A.R.E. program. Yes. Where Nancy Reagan came around and said, just say Stay no. Stay off drugs. drugs, right. Right. And I think to myself, boy, if this works, uh, <laughs> well, first of all, I knew it wouldn't. Uh, it just seems so simplistic and so stupid. Because it was a good idea, hypothetically, though. Right. Yeah, of course you're supposed to say no to drugs. Why? <laughs> because if you smoke marijuana it's going to make you a heroin addict which some people doesn't. enjoyed the process right right so you know a lot of times you know things are handled in a way that is not really respectful for us as uh as humans in this regard but um i will say that you know um there are certain professions that suffer more than others like you were mentioning I think the, the the from a professional standpoint, dentists have the highest suicide rate of any uh, professional. Second uh, in line are veterinarians, and I think that that's because uh, I don't know about you, but whenever I go to the dentist, I'm not there with a big smile on my face, right? And the dentists carry that feeling. Of, I thought it was more for how much I had to pay to go to the well, dentist that these days. Too, yeah, <laughs> along with how expensive it is, you know. But you're dealing with other people's pain and uncomfortableness oh, constantly. all the time. Right? It's, it's awful. And think about how many pets that veterinarians, uh, you know, would sleep. Oh, I'm sure it's a constant practice every day. And, and, and the amount of pain that people have in relationship to their 
you know, to losing a pet is probably equal or sometimes even more to losing certain humans in their life. So uh, I don't know how people like that deal with, because I don't think it's part of their education, that's for sure. I don't think that most people are taught pain management as a, uh, from a psychological perspective. So we spent the better, almost better part of 50 plus minutes now talking about empathic abilities, intuitive abilities, and and how you were raised and, and how you do your profession and, and how I was raised and how I came about understanding the blessing and the curse of, of, of what's within me as well. But for those people listening now, the, or the other 95% that don't have that empathy um, ability in it, how, how, how for them, how do they stop and, and be cognizant about taking on other people's emotions and, and, and realizing where to kind of put that line in well, place? You know, Kim, you're bringing up a really good point because it's not a black and white issue. It's not like if you're in the 95th percentile that uh, nobody's even close to um, being that sensitive. It's all on a continuum. And everybody has a certain degree of sensitivity. And it is something that you can enhance by learning how to ask yourself on a very regular basis, how am I feeling right now? What's going on inside of me emotionally right now? Because we're not brought up to uh, pay attention on a regular basis to how we're feeling. We're, what we're brought up to do is measure our performance, right? What grade am I getting? How, how good am I at the basketball right now? What, 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 you know? Well, we become human doers and not human beings anymore. That's right. So, so I think I ask, what I ask of everyone, regardless of where you might fall in that continuum, is that what matters most is that you treat yourself with a compassion that you didn't get when you were being raised. And that is to ask yourself kindly, how am I feeling? And treating your feelings as though they are your connection to reality, instead of thinking that everything has to happen inside your brain. Your brain was given to you in order to decide what to do about how you feel, not the other way around. And I'm not advocating wholesale expression of feeling. I think it's very wise to use your brain to decide how you're going to react to how you're feeling, but to understand that the feelings always come first in every situation. And the more you respect that, the more you're going to enhance your ability to capitalize on whatever degree of sensitivity that you may possess. I, I wish more of us would do that. I do too. It's certainly something I try to help people with every day. It would be nice if, you know, instead of creating fear, the media would actually project something like that in a way to help us get through this more recent crisis and, and this pandemic in terms of, of feeding fear into our head and, and, and misinformation both ways, you know, um, and not knowing which way to turn and, and how this world is going to turn out, not only for us that are, have lived a good part of the life already, but for our kids and, and their kids right. on this. Um, I mean, other advice too, because we did talk about and, and had mentioned during this episode about, you know, the teenage child that you had with this and and maybe parents that are listening right now that, that could pick up on cues of, of their kid maybe being, well, my kid's awfully sensitive and I don't know why. Some more cues that may tune them into their, their child having this ability. Well, I, I don't think it needs to be hugely complicated. I know when my kids were little, um, uh, when they're really, really little, we used to take a bath together and then got too big for that. So I actually bought a hot tub 
And I did it on purpose because what I wanted to do was find a bathtub that was big enough for all of us to sit in comfortably. And because I certainly didn't want my children drinking, I figured if they sat in the hot tub in the nice warm water, it would help them relax. And I spent a lot of time talking to my children about how they felt. I wasn't interested in what grades they were getting and all of that stuff. That's not what the hot tub was for. The hot tub was for, you know, why do you think your friend is acting like this? Or why do you think people are like this? Or I wanted them to start really thinking about their feelings, the feelings of the people that they care about, and to help them understand that that's really the most important thing in life is to really connect deeply with your own feelings and the feelings of the people around you. And, and again, obviously not to manage those feelings, but to be respectful of them. And I think it really helped. And for, after a while, they would get really upset with me if I wouldn't go in the hot tub with them if I didn't feel like it, because it just became part of the, the ritual for them to be able to talk about who they were as little people. And, and um, I think that that's really what it comes down to is finding a venue to talk to your kids. Not to talk at them, but to talk to them. Right, not a forced conversation. Right. Right, where they're feeling uncomfortable, where they're having to defend themselves. They're trying to explain feelings that they may not know how to explain. Right. But just to have this conversation with your kids and kind of learn more about them and learn more about what their life is like. And to step away from performance as being the only thing that matters. Well, this has been a, a a very good conversation, very interesting conversation, and uh, and we'll have uh, at least another episode or two uh, that you don't have to listen to Dana and I for the entire hour. That will bring in some uh, some other expertise on, on how uh, these people uh, look at uh, um, not taking on other people's emotions and and, and pain and and fear and, and so on and so forth. So appreciate everybody continuing listening and uh, we'll talk to you on the next episode. We appreciate our listeners and are interested in your comments and suggestions. Feel free to email us at fearmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor for this podcast, please email us at fearmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. See you next time.